This message by Kevin D. Young, titled The Church, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the sixth general session at our next 2010 conference. Kevin serves as senior pastor at University Reformed Church in East Lansing, Michigan. Let me start with a paragraph from a well-known Christian author that probably, if you haven't read, you've heard people refer to this author before. And he says in a recent book, this paragraph, let me be completely upfront about this. And this is a book about being worn out on the church, sick of the church. He says, let me be completely upfront about this. My goal is to help you be a revolutionary. A revolutionary in his mindset is someone who pursues God with reckless abandon with or without the local church. He says, I have been so moved by the spiritual authenticity of the revolutionaries I have encountered and so disappointed by much of what I have seen and measured among Christians in the United States over the last 20 plus years that I want to understand and be a part of this groundbreaking development. I sense that this is one place where God is operating in a big-time way these days, and I don't want to get left out, nor do I want you to be on the sidelines merely watching as the parade passes by. Whether you become a revolutionary immersed in, minimally involved in, or completely disassociated from a local church is irrelevant to me, and within boundaries to God. What matters is not whom you associate with, i.e. a local church, but who you are. Later, in the same chapter, this popular author has this to say about the local church. Quote, The point here is simply to recognize that if we place all our hope in the local church, it is a misplaced hope. Many well-intentioned pastors promote this perspective by proclaiming The local church is the hope of the world. Like most advertising slogans, this notion is emotionally appealing. The trouble is the sentiment is not biblical. Jesus and Jesus alone is the hope of the world. The local church is one mechanism that can be instrumental in bringing us closer to Him and helping us to be more like Him. But as the research data clearly shows, churches are not doing the job. And then this final sentence from this author. If the local church is the hope of the world, then the world has no hope. End quote. It is certainly true that Jesus is the hope of the world. But Jesus Christ is not uniquely present in the world in Starbucks nor in the woods, nor in the United Nations. He is present in His body, the church, the organism, and yes, the institution, which Paul describes in Ephesians 1.23 as, quote, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Think of everything we heard this morning about this great God whom we worship who is omnipresent, 
Paul says, this God who fills everything in every way, his fullness dwells in the church. So, I don't know about you, but I am supremely hopeful about the organization that contains the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The one holy apostolic universal church of which your local congregation is a visible and necessary expression is the hope of the world. Not in place of Jesus, but because the church is the place where Jesus loves to be. I have two goals in this talk. Number one, I want you to grow in your love for the local church. And number two, I want you to grow in your commitment to the local church. I want you to grow in your love for the local church. You can think of that as a decision to believe and to bear. To believe what God's Word says about the church and to bear with the failings of the church and to bear the burdens of those who fail you in the church. Love is a decision. And when I say I want us to grow in our commitment to the local church, you can think of that as a decision to settle and to serve. And I do not mean settle as in, well, okay, but to settle down in a single local church and to invest your resources, your time, your commitment to serve there and through that body to serve your community. I like what John Stott has written. I trust, he says, and you have to know, John, John Stott is, he is Mr. Uber-balanced. I mean, he is very British and he's very mature and he, he's always balanced. Sometimes I read something and I say, yeah, don't be so balanced there. Here, so that's the sort of person he is. He's not given to hyperbole. And here's what he says. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. I have been around the local church as long as I've been around. Not 35 years, 32. Uh, though I, was, I just met, uh, saw one of my, my friends last week, and sort of just someone I'm uh, getting to know and developing this friendship. And he said, how old are you? I said, you're only 32. You have so much gray hair. And that's why I cut my hair short. Some people are lose it, cut it short. Some people go gray, cut it short. I just say I bear the burdens of my people. <laughs> I have been around the church as long as I've been around. And so I, as well, I think, as a 32-year-old can know, have seen the good, the bad, the ugly of the local church. I have gone to morning and evening services. Every church I have ever been a part of has had morning and evening services. I have done youth group, Sunday school, Wednesday night. Our Wednesday night group uh, was sort of a Christian version of Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. The boys were called cadets. The girls, I kid you not, were called Calvinettes. Every man's dream in this room to find a Calvinette. 
just do something, okay? I'm restraining myself from a whole other sermon. I have been in the nursery. I have served in the nursery. I've been in the pew. I've been behind the pulpit. I'm sure I've spent more hours in churches than in any other building except for my own house. I've been like Samuel, just raised there in the house of the Lord. And in all of this, I've seen amazing things, and I have met some of the best people on the planet, and in many of you can testify. Many of you are these people. As CJ and I were talking this afternoon and thinking of Hebrews chapter 11, these are men and women of whom the world is not worthy. And I've seen so many times the church rally around a couple with a troubled pregnancy and they pray and pray. And sometimes, as we just had last year, then they mourn with the child who's never has a a day on the outside of the womb. And sometimes they celebrate as God literally does a miracle. We've heard testimony of that. I have seen so many kind Christians invite people over. Come, come live with us. Come stay with us. You need a place to eat this afternoon? Come. I've seen churches respond generously, sacrificially. There's a need. People give. I've seen conversions. You have. Adult baptisms. We, we do adult baptisms in my church. People sending out missionaries. People going. I've seen the, the, the kindest, most humble, most intelligent, most virtuous, most Christ-honoring people. And we've all seen bad stuff. I've seen marriages blow up seen churches divide over silly things. I have seen in my short life pastors whom I know leave their ministries because of burnout, because of sexual sin, because of addiction, because of anger. I know that pastors can be controlling. I know that churches can berate their pastors. I have seen silly things in the church. I was once on an outreach committee, and uh, not, not where I am now, it was about years ago, I was once on an outreach committee, and what fell under our purview in the outreach committee was the hospitality center for the church in the lobby. Okay, that sort of makes sense. One of the things the hospitality center would do would be hand out for parents of young children, a little, some things to color, and some crayons, okay, per, perhaps, you know, sort of sort of uh, deviating a little bit, not quite the center of the Great Commission, but important things nonetheless for outreach. And it was brought to our committee's attention. Someone who was manning this booth one week said, what do we do? Some of the children are putting snotty tissues in the bags. And so one of my friends on the committee, who could be somewhat snarky, I love him, but said, uh, what do you think, Kevin, if I put this in the minutes? Therefore, be it resolved. I do not like where this is going, friend. (laughs) Be it resolved that if anyone should find said tissue in said bag of crayons, they heretofore have permission to remove said tissue and place it in a trash receptacle nearby. (laughs) So you can put that in the minutes. I will delete it before it goes up the chain. 
churches deal with silly things sometimes. We've all been hurt in the church. If you haven't, stick around. I remember, I think this lady was very well-meaning. I bear her no ill will. I, I, I don't think she quite heard what she was saying, but I had just come to this church and was meeting with a number of people who were uh, upset about some of the, the, the perceived directions they thought we were going. And so I was meeting and the elders were meeting. We were trying to hear out what some of these concerns were. And one sweet lady said, I, I just can't quite put my finger on it. It seems like not too long ago, I just, I loved everything about this church. And, and then something happened. It was, a, it was around the time when you came. <laughs> sort of put two and two together and perhaps there's a cause and effect there. Many pastors have suffered much, much worse. And, and look, I'm naive. If I think I haven't hurt people in the church... I know that I have. The church can be a little bit like making sausage. It's best just to eat the thing and not really go behind the scenes and see how it gets put together. (laughs) And that is true at times. And yet I have also seen and have many people who have testified as they have gotten deeper into a church, I never knew how much you cared for us. How hard it is to love this body. How seriously you take shepherding. I did not understand why you do church discipline. The church is an indispensable part of God's plan. The church is a building. In Scripture, that's one of the metaphors. The church is a building. First Peter chapter 2 says we are like living stones... That's 1 Peter 2, verse 5, built into a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 3 says we are God's building. Jesus Christ is the foundation. So Jesus, if you just want Jesus and not the church, it's like having a basement without a house. Perhaps this this poor man that CJ and Grant have near the church. (laughs) You never drive by neighborhood. And say, they have a hole in the ground with cement. Let's move there. (laughs) No, let's, let's build on that foundation. We need a building. We need a house. And so, if you want Jesus without the church, you might as well have a basement without a house. The church is a body. We see in passages like Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 12. Ephesians 1, 22, God has put all things under Christ's feet and has given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. You've probably heard the word decapitation, to remove somebody's head. From the Latin word caput, meaning head, it is. Uh, The Latin word for body is corpus. So I'm inventing the word decorpulation. That's what... Some Christians want to do. They want Jesus without his body. They want a decorpulated Christ. It is a gruesome picture. Here's Jesus. He's a head. I just carry him around in a vat, similar to the vat I described yesterday. I just have this head. That's all I need. Me and him. I love him. Carry him around. How about I get a body? 
A head needs a body. The church is a bride. A building, a body, and a bride. Heaven in Revelation 19 is described as a wedding feast with Christ and the groom. As the groom and the church as his spotless bride. Ephesians 5.32 The mystery of marriage refers ultimately to Christ and the church. So think about this. God did not pick marriage you know, simply out of the blue to be an analogy for the church. It was His expressed purpose. And, and, and God was not thinking, hmm, I, need, I need a wedding sermon. How about, how about the church? No, it was His plan from eternity past that He would institute marriage. And one of, if not the central reason for instituting marriage is to show forth the relationship between Christ and the church. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says that in heaven we will be like the angels, neither married or given in marriage. Because the shadow that is marriage will have given way to the substance when we have the marriage which all of our imperfect marriages have been pointing when finally Christ and His church, His bride, are together in this great wedding feast of the Lamb. The church is his bride. And why is it that so many people think it's cool to diss Jesus' girlfriend? <laughs> I don't know if you saw this commercial. I actually put it on my blog a couple weeks ago. It's one of these Sonic commercials. You know, you have Sonics here in Maryland. I don't know if we have any in Michigan. but So these commercials have two people sitting in the car. And there's the husband and the wife. And they're eating some dessert. And... The wife is, is eating some sort of shake and she gets just a, a, a little bit of ice cream right here on her upper lip and she sort of sees herself in the car mirror and she, she laughs and she says, look, I, I have a mustache and the husband is, is just stirring around in his drink and he never looks up to his wife and he says, "Hun, you can only see it in the sunlight, don't worry about it. <laughs> And in the commercial, it's 30 seconds worth watching. He, he looks up, sees her reaction, says, oh, uh, must, only now, ne- never, never, ne- no, never at any other time, only now do you have a mustache. And yet we will tolerate that sort of insult upon Jesus' bride. Say, sure, bring it on. Make fun of the church. You're going to invite a buddy over who's just going to rag on your wife? Just say, that's great, man. Come over again. You put her down. You make fun of her. You mock her. I love that. I love that. Jesus doesn't love it. He does not love it. I can uh, just insert awkward transition here to a different illustration. Braveheart. Okay, different than the Sonic commercial. Uh, the beginning, if you've seen the movie, and, uh, don't commend all of it, watch the TV version. But there's, they do a nice job of showing this, uh, you know, relationship, this marriage, how he loves his wife, Mel Gibson, and uh, his wife, I don't remember the, the woman that plays the character, and then, of course, you know, it's very tragic and she's murdered. And the movie really is, is about 
his seeking after revenge, and it sort of mixes a lot of fact and history about William Wallace. And there is, there is something very appropriate there of a husband absolutely passionate to defend the honor of his wife. I remember one time, soon after I got to our church, now it's talking around, there's an elders meeting or something, I think we were having a retreat, and I was just trying to throw out a conversation question, and I was just asking some of the guys, I said, what, what would you do if uh, somebody came along and, you know, grabbed your wife's purse or shoved her to the ground and started running off, and what would you do? And people sort of, well, I, I don't know, I'd call for help, and I'd, uh, and I'd share the gospel <laughs> or something, and... And one guy who I, I absolutely love, just sit without a straight face without meeting, but I would knock his head off. And, and I believe that he would. And there is something very right about that thing that resonates, why you want to clap for that, that a, a husband ought to have such devotion to sacrificial love for his wife to avenge her dishonor. And here's, of course, where the analogy with Braveheart breaks down. Christ gave his life to his enemies for his bride. He did not take their lives for his bride. He gave of his own life. Jesus loves the church and she is often imperfect. You, you, you may say to me, but Kevin, you don't understand what the church is really like. The church is not a pure spotless bride and she isn't yet. There's a very strange song. I, I listened to oldies growing up and it's by an artist, Jimmy Soul. You know where I'm going with this, CJ? Okay. Uh, this, was, this, is, this is not the way to honor your wife, but this was this song, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife, so from my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. Um, not the sort of thing you're going to have on the dance floor at your wedding. I don't know what he was getting at, other than he had some, some baggage somewhere. But then you think of Christ, who does have, at times, a very ugly bride. And we ought to be honest, because we know our own hearts, that the church can do many harmful, hurtful things. And it is to Christ's glory that He loves us so deeply and loves His bride so profoundly and to the very end when we can at times be like Gomer in the book of Hosea and we are whores and prostitutes to our Lord. And yet there he is like Hosea with Gomer, I know, weird name, Gomer, the girl, on the auction block who has run away from him after other lovers and there is Hosea buying her back, his wife. Such is Christ's love for the church.
So I want you to know that being a part of a church, going to church, actually loving your church is good for your soul, biblically responsible, and pleasing to God. And when I say church, I do not mean three guys eating breadsticks at Pizza Hut talking about the ending of Lost. I mean the local church that meets wherever you want it to meet, but it exalts in the cross of Christ. It sings songs to a holy and loving God. It has church officers. It has declarative gospel preaching, celebrates baptism and the Lord's Supper, exercises church discipline, probably takes an offering, combines freedom and form in corporate worship, has old people and young people, has artsy types and NASCAR fans, seekers and stalwarts, and probably has bulletins and bylaws. Those churches. The church we love is as flawed and messed up as we are, but she is Christ's bride. And we might as well have a basement without a house or a head without a body or despise the wife that our Savior loves if we are to despise the church. What do we need in order to grow in love for the local church? Let me give you three things. Number one, if we are to grow in our love and commitment for the local church, we need to ask the right questions. We need to ask the right questions. You may have heard on blogs or newspapers that the number of Christians in this country is decreasing. Now, the news is not always as bad as some make it out to be. In 1939, the Gallup organization started taking this poll, asking Americans, did you happen to go to church last Sunday? In 1939, 41% said yes. Did you know that between the years 2000 and 2005, and, and since 1939, Gallup has asked that question every single year. Did you happen to be in church last Sunday? And from the years 2000 to 2005, the, the percentage of people answering yes to that question ranged between 40 and 44%. 41% in 1939, 40 to 44% today. Now, that's not as good as it seems because there's what... The statisticians call a halo effect. And just bear with me for three minutes here with some numbers. A halo effect that people sort of have this angelic sense about them and they give answers better than they really are. By one estimate, and this seems to be accurate, 17.5% of the American public actually attends church on any given weekend. More than twice as many say they do, but probably around 17.5% of Americans... Attend church on any given weekend. And if you, if you like numbers, I like numbers, a website I commend to you, it's thearda, T-H-E-A-R-D-A dot, I don't remember if it's dot com or dot org, but it stands for the Association of Religious Data Archives, something like that. And you can look up for your county, your city, your metropolitan area, percentages of Christians, non-Christians, denominations. It's a wealth of information. The number of people in church has stayed almost exactly the same over the past 15 years. In 1990, 52 million people were in church on any given Sunday. In 2005, 52 million people were in church on any given Sunday. Of course, the population has increased, so the percentage has decreased. Just over 20% of Americans went to church on any given weekend in 1990. 
By 2005, it was down to 17.5%. Estimates have it going to 14.7% by the year 2020. So this is not a good trajectory. Anybody who loves Jesus and loves the church wants to see more people in the church, not fewer. But if you look more closely at those numbers, you see that the decline is not uniform. During that time where the percentage went from 20.4 to 17.5, mainline churches, and that's more liberal Protestant churches, their percentage of churchgoers fell from 3.9 to 3%. Those attending Roman Catholic churches declined from 7.2 to 5.3. And those in evangelical churches, like Sovereign Grace, like Southern Baptists, like the churches that you're a part of, went from 9.2 to 9.1%. Now remember, that's a percentage of the total population. So actually, more people are in evangelical churches in 2005 than were in evangelical churches in 1990. We should be happy for that. And so, when you hear these numbers of the decline of the church, on one level, we are sad, but you dig into the numbers and you realize that it is not a newfound dissatisfaction with the gospel as much as it is the continuing story of Catholics and mainline Protestants losing their young, not increasing through evangelism, and the old dying off. What we are losing in this country are nominal Christians who no longer feel the cultural pressure to say they go to church or that they are Christians. So, I am making no sort of claim on what the future will look like, but my hunch is that in your lifetime, my lifetime, we will see the church in North America smaller than it is today, but it will be more gospel-centered, more scripture-saturated, stronger, more doctrinally robust, and more in love with the Savior than it has been in the last 50 years. It will be leaner and more theological and more committed. But for the sake of argument, let's take the glasses half empty. People say, look, the the, the church is failing. It's failing in its mission. It's, it's, It's shrinking. It's not transforming the community. Well, the questions that then people ask usually have to do with structure, programs. And listen, I'm a a senior pastor, and I know that structure matters. And programs often do good. So I'm I'm not against those things. But, But churches, when they hear this news, they often think, okay, what do we do with our music, our programs, structures? What are we not doing something right with contextualization? And all of those discussions have a place. But I want to suggest there are better questions that we ought to ask first. Number one, are we believing the gospel? People will not be convinced of Christianity if they do not sense that we are convinced of it. Richard Baxter in his classic book, The Reformed Pastor, noted in his own day, he said, some of our churches are pastored by unregenerate men. Now, I I would imagine it is not true of any of the churches represented here, but sadly, it is true of many churches in our land. Do we believe the gospel? In 1740, George Whitfield concluded, quote, the generality of preachers in New England talk of an unknown and an unfelt Christ. 
the reason why congregations have been so dead is because they have had dead men to preach to them. Ben Franklin, not any sort of Christian, but was a fan of George Whitfield and would go to hear him preach, the great evangelist in the Great Awakening, George Whitfield. And somebody asked Ben Franklin one time, Why are you going to hear Whitfield preach? You don't believe a thing he says. And Franklin answered, I know, but he does. In this day, with so much postmodern squishitude, people are hungry to listen to someone winsomely, humbly, wisely, but with passion and conviction say, Thus saith the Lord. Are we believing the gospel? Are we relying on the power of the gospel? If the gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of salvation for all who believe, why don't our services and our evangelism focus more explicitly on the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins? If our churches are shrinking, perhaps it is because the role of the word has shrunk. Do we trust God to build his church through the word or do we rely on tricks and gimmicks and fads? Number three, are we getting the gospel out? Church growth will not keep pace with growth in population unless we actively share the gospel with non-Christians. Winsomely, actually, with words, plead with them to be reconciled to God. Are we getting the gospel out and are we getting the gospel right? In an age where many Christians assume that doctrinal precision is at odds with passionate mission, we would do well to remember in Galatians 1.8 that the Apostle Paul damned to hell anyone who proclaimed a false gospel. God blesses churches that remain faithful to His Word. There's a couple of sociologists, Fink and Stark, And they have written a book on the churching of America from 1776 to 2005. It's a really fascinating book. I don't always buy the metaphor that they use, but there's a lot of helpful information. And here's the thesis of how America was churched. Quote, we will repeatedly suggest that as denominations have modernized their doctrines and embraced temporal values, they have gone into decline. When it comes to doctrinal Boundaries and moral demands the history of the church demonstrates. I don't want you to misunderstand how I'm going to put this. Demonstrates that stricter is stronger. Strict, you can think of authoritarian, that's not what we want. But boundaries for the way we live and the, the gospel we believe, those churches are strong because the Spirit is at work in them. Fifth question, are we adorning the gospel with good works? We must watch closely our doctrine and our life. Our good works are not the gospel, but they can adorn it. They can make it more attractive. Number six, are we praying for the work of the gospel? We must pray for more workers, pray for soft hearts, pray for God's Spirit to supernaturally bring about new birth. Every bit of hopelessness you see in your local church or your family or hopelessness in your own heart is God's way of reminding you to pray. The great evidence of unbelief in our churches is our prayerlessness. 
If we believed that God is sovereign, and if we believe that He loves to hear the prayers of His people, why would we not pray more? Why would we not have as our first impulse to be doubled over in prayer when we want to reach out to our community, when we want the church to grow? Are we training up our children in the gospel? Most of you are not parents. Most of you will be parents. A good portion of the decline in church attendance comes from the failure to retain our own children. What will it profit a man if he tries to transform the culture but loses his own children? And above all else we should ask, are we trusting in God's sovereignty in the gospel? God causes the deaf to speak and the blind to see. God melts hearts of stone. I hope you have been encouraged as I have by these testimonies to remind you, just remind you and build up your faith. God is at work. God is saving people by the gospel. God is saving the people you would never guess, the people you would guess, the people you don't even know. He is saving people. He is bringing glory to Himself. Look, as long as God is interested in His glory, He will be interested and committed to the local church. He has a vested interest in your church. Nobody loves your church more than God. Second, maybe confused, weren't you on six or seven? Remember, those were the questions, the right, asking the right questions. So I'm talking about how do we grow in our love for the local church and our commitment to the local church. And first, we must ask the right questions. Second, we need to have the right expectations. I think one of the most important doctrines that is missing in younger generations today, and it's the reason that people can get so tired of the church quickly, is the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin teaches that every single human being, whoever was, is, or shall be, save for Jesus, inherited from Adam a sinful nature that makes us predisposed to wickedness and rebellion. No one is righteous. Romans 3.10 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17.9 The natural man is dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2 By nature we pass our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, Titus 3.3. We are inclined toward evil, Genesis 6.5. Conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51.5. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53.6. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64.6. Please do not let anyone tell you that Augustine invented the doctrine of original sin. It is there over and over again in the pages of Scripture. And it is this doctrine with the related teachings of indwelling sin and the divided self that need to be recovered if we are to have a biblical, realistic appraisal of the local church. The doctrine of original sin would go a long way toward understanding the church's imperfections. Think of Luther's famous phrase, we are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinners. Every converted 
believer in your church is a justified sinner. Justified, also sinners. The church is at the same time the bride of Christ and a prostitute. When, when Ted Clark and I wrote the book, Why We Love the Church, we really wanted to have for the cover a wedding cake with the little plastic bride and groom and, and a you know, nice-looking groom and then a sort of prostitute-looking bride. <laughs> Publishers sometimes think of things that authors don't. Thought that, that might not be hitting the sweet spot for Moody. So they decided to do probably something that was wiser. But there is theological truth. Many young people especially have this idealized view of what the church used to be. Quote, one author, the early church was unstoppable until A.D. 324 when the movement turned into a monument once the first church building was erected. Another author, quote, during its first 150 years, the Christian church had not even heard of church buildings. In those days, the church was a mobile, flexible, relational, humble, inclusive reality that spread like wildfire. Here's another one. The New Testament church had no buildings. You get it. They don't like buildings. It had no clergy. It had no money. It had no authority. People relied on each other. People met in each other's homes. No neutral, cold, and personal buildings, but somebody's private living room. Decisions were made as a community. Life was lived in the context of community. And that community crossed social and economic status. What went wrong? All this changed with Constantine. That guy screwed up everything. I don't know. I mean, just everything. You don't like something in your church? Just tell your pastor, Constantine. Or just say it's the difference between Greek thinking and, and Hebrew thinking. Just people think you're smart. But what does it mean? It, it strains credulity to the breaking point to think that buildings cause the wheels to fall off the church. Or to think that it was Constantine, or Greek thinking, or later the Enlightenment, or Modernism, or Systematic Theologies, or Old Princeton, or Wayne Grudem, or somebody like that, and then suddenly the church became this dry, dull place. No, we need a little bit more realism. Think about the very first, you know, kind of quasi-church. Jesus and his band of disciples. Man, that was a motley crew. Not the band, but I mean just a motley crew of folks. You, you have some fishermen, not a respectable, middle class sort of folks, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then you have a tax collector. You've heard about tax collectors? These people are loathed. They're turncoats. They're in cahoots with the Roman government. They're cheats. You have on the other side of the political spectrum, Simon... The Canaanian, which doesn't mean he was from the land of Canaan. It's an Aramaic word meaning enthusiast or patriot. Luke 6.14 calls him Simon the Zealot. He was a fervent nationalist. And you got, you got these guys on the same team. So it's like four guys who sort of you know, own a little corner supermarket in town and then another guy who runs the casino and then this guy heads up the Michigan militia. Michigan. That's, those are the people that Jesus said, let's start the church with you guys. This is going to work. You, you think of how different they were. Peter, as you know, is impetuous, but he's a leader and he's out there in front. You have 
Bartholomew, who scholars think is the same person as Nathaniel in John 1, who says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So here's a guy, he's honest, a little tactless, needs to go to charm school, Baltimore the charm city, needs a little help. You have Thomas, who's doubting, he's incredulous. Well, I see you, Jesus, I want to put my hands in you. I can't believe that. You have James and John, they're hotheads. Boanerges, Jesus calls them, sons of thunder. In Luke 9, when Samaria rejects Jesus entering there, you remember what James and John say? Jesus, should we now, now call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? Jesus never sinned, so I don't, I don't know if he could have had sarcasm without sinning at that moment. But I'm thinking, he's thinking, yeah, that's exactly right. You've been paying a lot of attention. You, you're really, everything I've taught you, you're just A+. Plus. Yeah, they don't want us there, nuke them. Yeah, that's about right. The, and then... You have all sorts of guys you don't even know. I mean, you don't even know their names. I mean, you know their names. You don't know anything about them. I mean, Thaddeus. I don't know if there's any Thads here. They don't love you. I've never baptized a Thad. Oh, there are some Thads. We, at one time in our church, had two Thors. The only two Thors in North America. And they were both in our church. So you have these guys who are quiet. You don't know much about them. What did they do? Maybe they were just more reserved. And of course you have Judas. He's a betrayer. He's a fake. And he tries to sink the whole mission. That's the first church. Okay. Maybe my church ain't so bad. (laughs) One author said that the early church was a church of power and sincere community. Quote, a beatific vision. Have they not read 1 Corinthians? I mean, you have the church there with evidences of grace, but you have the church there with all manner of problems. They have divisions and controversies and sexual immorality and power struggles and money issues and authority issues and marriage issues and anything else you can think of. That's the church. So we ought to be realistic. And I I, I know... Many of you have disappointments that run very deep, deeper than I've experienced. And many of them are legitimate and people have hurt you. Maybe pastors have hurt you. I'm sorry. God's sorry. There's no way to excuse our own sinfulness, but it is to give us a realistic appraisal that saints and sinners we will always be. We will be disappointed at times. You know, we had in seminary, I remember uh, an Indian Christian from the subcontinent of India come and visit us, you know, and it was people from Gordon-Conwell, and we were probably all, you know, white Americans mostly there and talking. And we just were asking him about community. That's what we're all into, community. We want community. And he, and I'll never forget, he said, you Americans are, are always after community. 
We have it in India, and it's not as good as you think. And what he meant by that was, it's a lot harder than you think. You want this community, you want tight-knit, you want people. He said, we have it. And there's all sorts of cultural pressures that are very difficult for folks. There's all sorts of obstacles to the gospel. And yes, it's good and glorious and community represents the Trinity, but it's hard. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, warns against those who love community so much that they are prone to destroy it. He argues that it is usually those most in love with the idea of community who are most likely to be impatient with real community. Because you're sitting there in your church, in your small group, why aren't we going deeper? Why aren't we, why aren't we confessing sins? Why aren't we feeling more spiritual? Why isn't this better? You have this ideal of community and it's preventing you from loving your real community. The doctrine of original sin can also help the church from drifting away what, from what matters most. See, if we're always doing polling and we're always chasing the trends, then the church's target will be moving and will forever be doomed to chase relevance, to manage people's perceptions, to catch up with the cutting edge. The church will not be on the cutting edge. When the church figures out what's cool, it will not be cool anymore. I just finally discovered that people liked American Idol and then nobody watches it anymore. Man. I don't know anything about Lost. All these people were talking and on Facebook about, did you see the end of, end of Lost and what happens? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and no one is at my church wanting me to talk about it. They want me to talk about the Word and the Gospel. And if we are chasing these trends, we will be missing the target. But if we remember original sin, we will be kept on target to remember that the problem now and always will be sin. And so we will always be in need of a Savior. I'm not that old, not old enough to have seen many of the fads that have come and gone, but I do remember when seeker-sensitive churches were all the rage, and I'm, the Lord has used many churches under that label. I'm not condemning it out of hand. But I remember when that was all the rage and a new worship style was supposed to solve everything, a new contemporary style, and so we plugged in the guitars and turned up the lights and we made the sermons more practical. And Trinity Church became Apple Blossom Community and First Lutheran became Celebration of Life. And today, we are told that young people want something more raw, more ancient, more participatory. And so we've plugged into liturgy, we've turned down the lights, we've put up stations of the cross, and Christ Church has become Missio Dei Fellowship, and First Baptist now holds a 1003 fusion gathering. This too shall pass. Do it. Name your church with the Latin phrase that no one knows. Go for it. Just don't think that that's the Lord's appointed means for saving the nations. Finally, the doctrine of original sin forces us to take a more honest look at ourselves, our remaining indwelling sin. Pastors, and there are some of you here and maybe others who will listen or watch this later online, pastors need to own up to our 
fear of man, our love of the praise of men. We need to admit that the problem is not always out there. It's one thing sometimes at pastor's conferences, if they're not not done wisely, uh, as you encourage pastors, we also need to challenge pastors because it's not just that people are out to get us as pastors. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. We are not always the persecuted, misunderstood ones. We have not always represented Christ well. Our sermons are sometimes boring. (laughs) I, I was on a little panel not long ago and someone asked the question what's your what's your biggest disappointment in the church in your church and I thought about what to say and I said this is not putting on any sort of false humility I just I said and this is really really what I believe I said I am my own biggest problem in my church my fears, my cowardliness, the way the world presses in on me, the way that I I lack the self-discipline and self-control that I want, the way that I see I'm not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit like I desire. I am my own biggest problem. And I didn't, I'm not saying that to try to give the good answer. You know, when you go into a job interview and they well, what are, what are some of your weaknesses? And you, you have that moment. What do I say? You know, I steal stuff? No, I'm probably not best to <laughs> mention that one. And so you come up with something, um, I work too hard. Yeah. <laughs> I just give, give, give. So I, I wasn't doing that sort of answer. I just know my own heart and I'm frustrated with myself more than I'm frustrated even with with other people so we need to be honest and churchgoers need to admit that they don't always look like Christ and sometimes people have negative impressions of the church and it's not because the God of this age has blinded their minds but because we have been ugly it's true at times And as we deal with one another in the church, we need to stop assuming the worst about each other. So many church conflicts could be avoided if we would give each other the benefit of the doubt. We need to overlook small offenses, and when they are big offenses, talk directly to the person who has offended us. Churchgoers, you can do your pastors a tremendous favor if you do not wait to be asked to do ministry. Go. Disciple, Go meet with people. Go pray. Do ministry. We, we don't always know who you are to ask. We're trying. We don't always know what program. We're trying. Please do ministry in Christ's name. Our churches, probably many of our churches, need to realize that we have often been more adept at welcoming clean-cut, suburban, homeschool families. And I am all three of those things, then we have been adept at knowing how to welcome pierced, indie rocker, tattoo types, or streetwise, urban, former drug dealers. We just have to realize that not everyone immediately feels as welcome in our church as many of us do. Now, what do you do with that? Well, you be yourself. Uh, 
that you be holy and you love. You love. You talk to people. You invite them over. You, you ask how they're doing. You just be a normal Christian person. And those of you who have issues with the church, let me warn you that disillusionment can become an idol. You can easily find your identity in being jaded. I'll tell you one, th- one thing that absolutely bothers me, and I think it, it is right to bother me, is the whole culture, and you see it often in our late night talk show hosts in comedians. It is a culture of cynicism. If you can be cynical about everything, you are so cool. And that has currency with young people. But it's not the currency Christ wants us to have. And let me say that in our hyper-therapeutic culture, we need to realize that sometimes being in touch with your pain and being real about your doubts and being authentic about your struggles sometimes is a form of narcissism and self-absorption and not maturity. Sometimes. It is easy to blast the church for all her failures. It is harder to live in the church day after day, year after year, with all of the ho-hum, humdrum, and slowly, consistently make a difference. Which brings me to my last point. What we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. So we need to ask the right questions, we need to have the right expectations, and we need to establish the right vision. Let me just take you as we bring this to a close, which is pastor speak for, hang on. Uh, Go to Zechariah chapter 4. Before you get to the New Testament, Zechariah chapter 4. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel. You remember that little saying from Sunday school? The building is in rubbable. Get here on the trouble. Time to call Zerubbabel. Something like that. So it just helps you remember Zerubbabel is helping to rebuild the temple. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, the temple, which was destroyed, and now the exiles are back. They're rebuilding it. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The plumb line is this, this little weight that would hang down, a sort of measuring that the building is straight and it is finished. If there's something that... Here's my burden for our generation, if I can claim you who are in your 20s, is along with all of the necessary pleas we have to be earnest and intense and radical and sold out with all of that I just also want to wave the banner from Zechariah 4.10 do not despise the days of small things that's what I mean by being plodding visionaries so if you're a visionary you don't have your head in the sand you're going somewhere you're looking out you're moving in a direction but you're a plotter One foot in front of the other. Many of us 
are attracted to a Tasmanian devil kind of Christianity. You remember from Looney Tunes? Spinning around. I'm tempted to do the impression, but uh, you know what he's like. <laughs> Just you know, splattering, spinning around. You get fired up. Praise God for that. You get excited and you spin out like the Tasmanian devil, ready to conquer the world for Christ, and you blow up into a tree somewhere. We need plodding visionaries. When I wrote the book on the church, I read nine books that called for a revolution. Every other day, it seems like, I read of a new manifesto, and we may need to just simplify a little. Get on the right road and keep going. Get on the right road, keep going. Our generation in particular is prone to radicalism without follow-through. We want to change the world and we've never changed a diaper. You want to make a difference for Christ? Here's where you can start this Sunday. Volunteer for the nursery. Here I am, Pastor. What can I do to serve? And I, I'm so, so blessed at my church. And I could give you names, as many of you could give names from your church. And the only reason I don't is because they might watch this and I don't want them to feel embarrassed. But names of people that, that they are the salt of the earth. They are pillars of our church. And you know what they're like? They show up. Number one, you've got to show up. They read the minutes. Who reads the minutes? They do. They pay attention. They come through the line and they shake my hand and look me in the eye and say, Pastor, I pray for you every day. And I believe it. Somebody needs to bring cookies? They bring cookies. They need a volunteer? It's a volunteer. Want to have Adopt a College Student Sunday? Sure, we'd love to have them over. Call them up at 7 in the morning. They're in their chair. They're reading their Bibles. They're not pastors. They're not missionaries. They're not conference speakers. They work at the grocery store. They're doctors. They're lawyers. They're teachers. They're shoe repairmen. And they love the Lord Jesus Christ. And they love His church. And those ought to be your heroes. Can we be... Can we be the young generation that loves and respects and looks up to the older generation? Can we not play this sort of, you're old, you don't know what you're talking about? Can we say, maybe you know more what you're talking about and honor them as Scripture tells us to do and find our heroes there, okay? You want to listen to you too, but you can find better heroes in your local church than Bono. We need to follow these men and women like Tychicus who brought the letter to the Ephesians and Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy. Paul says, he often refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains. So what did this man do? Nothing that we know about except he loved Paul and he didn't care that he was in prison and he refreshed him. Would you pray as you go back to your church that you would be a refresher? We need to get on a pace that we can finish the race. 
I heard a wise pastor once say, anything that cannot be sustained is not of God. Now, you might have a season of your life that you commit to, you know, read the Bible and, you know, and you want to do it in three months and you, that's not normal pace. That's wonderful. But for a lifetime, we need a pace that can be sustained. I love the story of Eric Little running the 400 meters at Paris, Chariots of Fire. It's a great movie. And after he ran and won the gold medal, set the world record in 1924, and someone asked him, Eric, how did you run the 400 meters so fast? And he said, well, I ran the first 200 meters as fast as I could. And then by God's grace, I ran the second 200 meters even faster. That's what I want our generation to be like. Not, I ran the first 200 meters like the Tasmanian devil and I fell apart. (laughs) Plodding visionaries. And you know why that's hard? Because it takes humility. In the grand scheme of things, most of us are more like Phlegon than the Apostle Paul. Look him up. (laughs) And there's a reason that I... We named our fourth child Paul and not Phlegon, but (laughs) Christians get tired of the church and one of the reasons is because we have not learned the humility to be a part of the crowd. You can be a part of the crowd because God knows your name. Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional times often seem like a waste. Church services are often forgettable. That's life. You drive to the same place, you go through the same routines with the same kids, you buy the same groceries at the same store, and church is often that way. Same doctrine, same order of worship, same preacher, same people, same guitars. But in all the smallness and in all the sameness, God works like the smallest seed in the garden, growing to be the biggest plant in the whole world. Life is often ordinary. And following Jesus is usually like that. It's not usually like this. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning. God is not calling you to be an agent of global transformation every evening. It is, to use Eugene Peterson's phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. So the church is not incidental to God's plan. Jesus did not invite people to an anti-religion, anti-institutional, anti-doctrinal bandwagon of love and harmony. He called them to repent, to have faith, and he called them out of the world and into the church. John Stott remarks, you never see in Acts anyone being saved except that they are added to the number of the church. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If we truly love the church, we will bear with her in her failings, endure with her in her struggles, believe her to be the beloved bride of Christ, and hope for her final glorification. So I believe, as I think you do as well, that the church is in fact the hope of the world. Not because she gets it all right, but because she is a body with Christ for her head. So do not give up on the church. The New Testament knows nothing of churchless Christianity. So here's here's my final paragraph, I promise. Find a good local church. Get involved. Be a member. Stay there as long as you can. 
Put away thoughts of a revolution for a while and join the plotting visionaries. Go to church this Sunday and worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with your leaders. Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Say hi to the teenager that no one notices. Welcome the old ladies with the blue hair and the young men with the tats. And volunteer for the nursery. Attend the congregational meeting. Bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everybody else. Invite a friend. Take a new couple out for coffee. Give to the Christmas offering. Sing like you mean it. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet for you. Enjoy the Sundays that click. Pray extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And in all of this, do not despise the days and weeks and years of small things. Let's pray. Father, work. We trust you have been. Continue to work now by your Spirit that everyone here would go home tomorrow more ready to love their local church and be committed to their local church. Help those. Give wisdom to any here who are struggling because their church, there's, there's a new pastor, there's an, a new leader, and they're not sure if the gospel is there anymore. Give them wisdom to handle things in the right way, to talk, to have the right conversations. Give them wisdom to know what to do. Help those who are hurt to bear with those and to be like the Lord Jesus who did not revile when he was reviled. And Lord, help all of the thousands of young people here to live the sort of life at the sort of pace that they can do it by your grace for a lifetime. Oh Lord, we honor you for the gifts you have given in our churches, all these men and women of whom the world is not worthy. And if we could do just a small part in our small days to be another stone, another living stone in your building, we would be thrilled with that as long as we're built on the cornerstone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message by Kevin DeYoung, which was given at our next 2010 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.